We are often taught to think of baptism merely as the sacrament that washes away original sin. Yes, the removal of original sin is an effect of baptism, but it is not the primary or even most important effect. The first effect, the entire purpose of baptism, is unity with Jesus. When we are perfectly united with Christ, that unity has many effects, one of which is that all sin is wiped away. But the others are equally, if not more important. Membership in the body of Christ, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, participation in divine life. All of these effects of baptism start with and flow from our unity with Jesus. Now, when I say unity, a lot of us probably have in mind an emotional or empathetic unity, like we might have with a family member or a character in a movie. We feel like we can relate to that person, like we understand that person, like we have some camaraderie with that person. But this kind of unity only exists like an opinion in our head. Our unity with Jesus through baptism is not a subjective unity that exists because we feel it. It is an objective unity that exists in reality, whether we feel it or not. You may have noticed that most modern churches now have large baptismal fonts that allow us to baptize adults through immersion, that is, by submerging them underwater or at least by pouring a significant amount of water over their head. This trend in church architecture is rooted in ancient Christian practices, when more adults were baptized than children, and it allows us to emphasize more clearly the nature of baptism, so well understood in the first few centuries of Christianity. See, the earliest Christians knew that baptism brought about an objective unity with Jesus, and they saw the ceremonies of baptism as a fitting analogy for its effects. When an adult is submerged under the water, this is akin to a death, and also akin to a descent into the earth, that is, a burial. And when an adult emerges from the water, that is akin to a resurrection from the dead. And these two things, of course, are the two most important aspects of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. And it is our baptism that allows us to live out and unite ourselves to the death and resurrection of Jesus. But remember... Baptism brings an objective unity with Jesus. Only in recent centuries did Christians ever think that baptism was a reenactment, like a play that lets us pretend like we are doing what Jesus did, or a ritual that externalizes something going on in our hearts. For almost the entire history of our faith, Christians understood that baptism actually does something. 
It actually puts us in the tomb next to Jesus and allows us to resurrect as he did. We're not acting out what Jesus did. We are taking part in the original action itself. Our unity with Jesus is not merely sentimental. It is a unity of participation, where we objectively die with him and objectively rise with him. I find it helpful to think about baptism, like the Eucharist, as a portal through time and space. When we celebrate the Eucharist, we open a portal to Calvary. We offer to the Father the bread and wine, and our very selves, next to Jesus on the actual cross in Jerusalem, and we receive back from that same cross the body of Christ as a gift. Similarly, when we are baptized, we open up a portal to Christ's death and resurrection, so that we too can take part in these central events of our salvation. Unity with the death and resurrection of Jesus would be enough. But the Lord himself deigned to be baptized in addition, which means that our baptism also unites us to his own baptism. Because we are opening a portal, and because we are perfectly united with him through it, whatever happened at Jesus' baptism also happens at our own. Two things are especially important to notice from this event. First, after Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends upon him, which again means that at our own baptisms, the Spirit descends upon us too. Now obviously, Jesus did not need the Spirit, since both are God and perfectly united. But the Spirit descends upon Jesus nonetheless as an example to us of what happens when we ourselves are baptized. Now this is where we deviate a little bit from baptism. Yes, the Spirit does dwell in us after our baptism, but Christian history tells us that this descent of the Spirit is more likely an allusion to the sacrament of confirmation, not the sacrament of baptism. In the most ancient Christian liturgies, the bishop would baptize a person and then confirm her immediately. Baptism and confirmation always happened at the same time. In the Eastern Church, this is still true, even for infants, but the priests now do the confirmations rather than the bishops. In the Western Church, priests still immediately confirm adults after their baptism. But we prefer that, in general, the bishop still be the one who confirms, which means that most of us are confirmed long after we are baptized. Still, what the Gospel is showing us today is that our baptisms are incomplete until we are confirmed. Those two sacraments go together and have always gone together since the baptism of Christ himself And we see this continually corroborated in the Acts of the Apostles. 
Our baptism is ratified and sealed by our confirmation. And our unity with Christ is incomplete without that second sacrament. The second thing to notice about the baptism of Jesus is the words of the Father. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Everything I have been saying culminates with this deep truth. If by our baptism we objectively participate in the baptism of Jesus, then God the Father objectively speaks these words over us as well. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased. These may be the most important words spoken in Christianity because they are the foundation of the Christian life. When we unite ourselves to Jesus through baptism, we enter into the same relationship with the Father that Jesus has. We become sharers of the divine life, God's most beloved children, with whom he is well pleased. Note well that this attitude of the Father never changes. There is nothing we can do to disappoint God. There is nothing we can do to make him love us more and nothing we can do to make him love us less. We are his beloved children always. I hear so often from people who believe that when something goes wrong in their lives, it is because they are being punished by God for their sins. This is so, so wrong. God would never punish us, ever. God is our loving Father, and we please Him always, forever, no matter what. Sin does not change God's attitude. It changes our attitude. When we sin, we close off our hearts from receiving God's love. But He never stops loving us, and we can always return to that love. When we feel distant from God, let's return to these words that God spoke over Jesus. Because whatever was true for Jesus is true for us through our perfect unity with him in baptism. I believe the church's theology of baptism. So I promise you, as the church does, that the Father speaks these words over you, even today. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased.